Section 29 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lemon, Chapter 18. It was not until May 9th and 10th that the Republican State Convention of Illinois met at Decatur. Mr. Lincoln was present, and is said to have been there as a mere spectator. He had no special interest in the proceedings, and appears to have had no notion that any business relating to him was to be transacted that day. It was a very large and spirited body, comprising an immense number of delegates, among whom were the most brilliant as well as the shrewdest men in the party. It was evident that something of more than usual importance was expected to transpire. A few moments after the convention organized, old Abe was seen squatting, or sitting on his heels, just within the door of the wigwam. Governor Oglesby rose, and said, amid increasing silence, "'I am informed that a distinguished citizen of Illinois,' and one whom Illinois will ever delight to honor, is present, and I wish to move that this body invite him to a seat on the stand. Here the governor paused, as if to tease and dally, and work curiosity up to the highest point. But at length he shouted the magic name, Abraham Lincoln. Not a shout, but a roar of applause, long and deep, shook every board and joist of the wigwam, the motion was seconded and passed. A rush was made for the hero that sat on his heels. He was seized and jerked to his feet. An effort was made to jam him through the crowd to his place of honor on the stage, but the crowd was too dense and it failed. Then he was trusted, lifted up bodily, and lay for a few seconds sprawling and kicking upon the heads and shoulders of the great throng. In this manner he was gradually pushed toward the stand, and finally reached it, doubtless to his great relief, in the arms of some half-dozen gentlemen who set him down in full view of his clamorous admirers. The cheering was like the roar of the sea. Hats were thrown up by the Chicago delegation, as if hats were no longer useful. Mr. Lincoln rose, bowed, smiled, blushed, and thanked the assembly as well as he could in the midst of such a tumult. A gentleman who saw it all says, I then thought him one of the most diffident and worst-plagued men I ever saw. At another stage of the proceedings, Governor Oglesby rose again with another provoking and mysterious speech. There was, he said, an old Democrat outside who had something he wished to present to the convention— "'Receive it! Receive it!' cried some. "'What is it? What is it?' screamed some of the lower Egyptians, who had an idea that the old Democrat might want to blow them up with an infernal machine. But the party for Oglesby and the old Democrat was the stronger, and carried the vote with a tremendous hurrah. The door of the wigwam opened, and a fine, robust old fellow, with an open countenance and bronze cheeks, marched into the midst of the assemblage, bearing on his shoulder two small triangular heart-rails surmounted by a banner with this inscription two rails 
from a lot made by Abraham Lincoln and John Hanks in the Sangamon Bottom in the year 1830. The sturdy bearer was old John Hanks himself, enjoying the great field day of his life. He was met with wild and tumultuous cheers, prolonged through several minutes, and it was observed that the Chicago and central Illinois men put up the loudest and longest. The whole scene was for a time simply tempestuous and bewildering. But it ended at last, and now the whole body, those in the secret and those out of it, clamored like men beside themselves for a speech from Mr. Lincoln, who in the meantime blushed but seemed to shake with inward laughter. In response to the repeated appeals, he rose and said, "'Gentlemen, I suppose you want to know something about those things,' pointing to old John and the rails. "'Well, the truth is, John Hanks and I did make rails in the Sangamon Bottom. I don't know whether we made those rails or not. Fact is, I don't think they are a credit to the makers,' laughing as he spoke. "'But I do know this. I made rails then.' and I think I could make better ones than these now. By this time the innocent Egyptians began to open their eyes. They saw plainly enough now the admirable presidential scheme unfolded to their view. The result of it all was a resolution declaring that Abraham Lincoln is the first choice of the Republican Party of Illinois for the presidency, and instructing the delegates to the Chicago Convention to use all honorable means to secure his nomination, and to cast the vote of the state as a unit for him. The crowd at Decatur, delegates and private citizens, who took part in these proceedings, was estimated at five thousand. Neither the numbers nor the enthusiasm was a pleasant sight to the divided and demoralized Democrats. They disliked to hear so much about honest old Abe, the rail-splitter, the flat-boatman, the pioneer. These cries had an ominous sound in their ears. Leaving Decatur on the cars, an old man out of Egypt, devoted to the great principles of democracy, and excessively annoyed by the demonstration in progress, approached Mr. Lincoln and said, "'So you're Abe Lincoln.' "'That's my name, sir,' answered Mr. Lincoln. "'They say you're a self-made man,' said the Democrat. "'Well, yes,' said Mr. Lincoln. "'What there is of me is self-made.' "'Well, all I've got to say,' observed the old man, after a careful survey of the statesman before him, "'is that it was a damn bad job.' In the meantime Mr. Lincoln's claims had been attractively presented to the politicians of other states— so early as 1858, Mr. Herndon had been to Boston, partly, if not entirely, on this mission, and latterly Judge Davis, Leonard Sweat, and others had visited Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Maryland in his behalf. Illinois was, of course, overwhelmingly and vociferously for him. On the 16th of May, the Republican Convention assembled at Chicago, the city was literally crammed with delegates, alternates, outside workers, and spectators. No nominating convention had ever before attracted such multitudes to the scene of its deliberations. The first and second days were spent in securing a permanent organization and the adoption of a platform. 
the latter set out by reciting the declaration of independence as to the equality of all men not forgetting the usual quotation about the right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness the third resolution denounced disunion in any possible event the fourth declared the right of each state to order and control its own domestic institutions according to its own judgment exclusively the fifth denounced the administration and its treatment of kansas as well as its general support of the supposed rights of the south under the constitution the sixth favored economy the seventh denied the new dogma that the constitution of its own force carries slavery into any or all of the territories of the united states the eighth denied the authority of congress of a territorial legislature or of any individuals to give legal existence to slavery in any territory of the united states the ninth called the african slave trade a burning shame the tenth denounced the governors of kansas and nebraska for vetoing certain anti-slavery bills the eleventh favored the admission of kansas the twelfth was a high-tariff manifesto and a general stump speech to the mechanics the thirteenth lauded the homestead policy the fourteenth opposed any federal or state legislation by which the rights of citizenship hitherto accorded to immigrants from foreign lands shall be abridged or impaired with some pretty words intended as a further bid for the foreign vote the fifteenth declared for river and harbor improvements and the sixteenth for a pacific railroad it was a very comprehensive platform and if all classes for whom planks were provided should be kind enough to stand upon them there could be no failure in the election on the third day the balloting for a candidate was to begin up to the evening of the second day mr seward's prospects were far the best it was certain that he would receive the largest vote on the first ballot and outside of the body itself the crowd for him was more numerous and boisterous than for any other except mr lincoln for mr lincoln however the pressure from the multitude in the wigwam in the streets and in the hotels was tremendous it is sufficiently accounted for by the fact that the spot was chicago and the state illinois besides the vast numbers who came there voluntarily to urge his claims and to cheer for him as the exigency demanded his adherents had industriously drummed up their forces in the city and country and were now able to make infinitely more noise than all the other parties put together there was a large delegation of roughs there for mr seward headed by tom hyer the pugilist these and others like them filled the wigwam toward the evening of the second day in expectation that the voting would begin the lincoln party found it out and determined to call a check to that game they spent the whole night in mustering and organizing their loose fellows from far and near and at daylight the next morning took charge of the wigwam filling every available space and much that they had no business to fill as a result the seward men were unable to get in and were forced to content themselves with curbstone enthusiasm mr lincoln seemed to be very sure all along that the contest would ultimately be between him and mr seward the bates men were supposed to be conservative that is not abolitionists 
and the object of the move in favor of Mr. Bates was to lower the fanatical tone of the party, and save the votes of certain Union men who might otherwise be against it. But a Seward man had telegraphed to St. Louis, to the friends of Mr. Bates, to say that Lincoln was as bad as Seward, and to urge them to go for Mr. Seward in case their own favorite should fail. The dispatch was printed in the Missouri Democrat, but was not brought to Mr. Lincoln's attention until the meeting of the convention. He immediately caught up the paper, and wrote on its broad margin, Lincoln agrees with Seward in his irrepressible conflict idea, and in Negro equality, but he is opposed to Seward's higher law. With this he immediately dispatched a friend to Chicago, who handed it to Judge Davis or Judge Logan. Simon Cameron of Pennsylvania was nominally a candidate, but in the language of Colonel McClure it meant nothing, it was a mere sham got up to enable Cameron to make a bargain with some real candidate, and thus secure for himself and his friends the lion's share of the spoils, in the event of a victory at the polls. The genuine sentiment of the Pennsylvania delegation was divided between Judge Bates and Judge McLean, but Cameron was in a fine position to trade, and his friends were anxious for business. On the evening of the second day these gentlemen were gratified. A deputation of them, Casey, Sanderson, Reeder, and perhaps others, were invited to the Lincoln headquarters at the Tremont House, where they were met by Messrs. Davis, Sweat, Logan, and Dole, on the part of Mr. Lincoln. An agreement was there made that if the Cameron men would go for Lincoln, and he should be nominated and elected, Cameron should have a seat in his cabinet, provided the Pennsylvania delegation could be got to recommend him. The bargain was fulfilled, but not without difficulty. Cameron's strength was more apparent than real. There was, however, a certain class of the delegates under his immediate influence, and these, with the aid of Mr. Wilmot and his friends, who were honestly for Lincoln, managed to carry the delegation by a very small majority, about six. About the same time a similar bargain was made with the friends of Caleb B. Smith of Indiana, and with these two contracts quietly ratified, the Lincoln men felt strong and confident on the morning of the third day. While the candidates were being named, and when the ballotings began, every mention of Mr. Lincoln's name was received with thundering shouts by the vast mass of his adherents by whom the building had been packed. In the phrase of the day, the outside pressure was all in his favor. On the first ballot, Mr. Seward had 173 and a half votes, Mr. Lincoln 102, Mr. Cameron 50 and one-half, Mr. Chase, 49, Mr. Bates, 48, Mr. Dayton, 14, Mr. McLean, 12, Mr. Collimer, 10, and six were scattered. Mr. Cameron's name was withdrawn on the second ballot, according to the previous understanding. Mr. Seward had 184 and a half, Mr. Lincoln, 181, Mr. Chase, 42 and a half, Mr. Bates, 35, Mr. Dayton ten, Mr. McLean eight, and the rest scattered. It was clear that the nomination lay between Mr. Seward and Mr. Lincoln, and the latter was receiving great accessions of strength. The third ballot came, and Mr. Lincoln ran rapidly up to two hundred thirty-one and a half votes. 
233 being the number required to nominate. Hundreds of persons were keeping the count, and it was well known, without any announcement, that Mr. Lincoln lacked but a vote and a half to make him the nominee. At this juncture Mr. Carter of Ohio rose, and changed four votes from Mr. Chase to Mr. Lincoln. He was nominated. The wigwam shook to its foundation with the roaring cheers. The multitude in the streets answered the multitude within, and in a moment more all the holiday artillery of Chicago helped to swell the grand acclamation. After a time the business of the convention proceeded, amid great excitement, all the votes that had heretofore been cast against Mr. Lincoln were cast for him before this ballot concluded, and upon a motion the nomination was made unanimous. The convention then adjourned for dinner, and in the afternoon finished its work by the nomination of Hannibal Hamlin of Maine for vice-president. All that day, and all the day previous, Mr. Lincoln was in Springfield, trying to behave as usual, but watching the proceedings of the convention, as they were reported by telegraph, with nervous anxiety. Mr. Baker, the friend who had taken the Missouri Democrat to Chicago with Mr. Lincoln's pregnant endorsement upon it, returned on the night of the 18th. Early in the morning he and Mr. Lincoln went to the ball alley to play at fives, but the alley was pre-engaged. They went to an excellent and neat beer saloon to play a game of billiards, but the table was occupied. In this strait they contented themselves with a glass of beer, and repaired to the journal office for news. C. P. Brown says that Lincoln played ball a great deal that day, notwithstanding the disappointment when he went with Baker, and Mr. Zane informs us that he was engaged in the same way the greater part of the day previous. It is probable that he took this physical mode of working off or keeping down the unnatural excitement that threatened to possess him. About nine o'clock in the morning Mr. Lincoln came to the office of Lincoln and Herndon. Mr. Zane was then conversing with a student. "'Well, boys,' said Mr. Lincoln, "'what do you know?' "'Mr. Rosette,' answered Zane, who came from Chicago this morning, "'thinks your chances for the nomination are good.' Mr. Lincoln wished to know what Mr. Rosette's opinion was founded upon, and while Zane was explaining, Mr. Baker entered with a telegram, which said the names of the candidates for nomination had been announced, and that Mr. Lincoln's had received more applause than any other. Mr. Lincoln lay down on a sofa to rest. Soon after Mr. Brown entered, and Mr. Lincoln said to him, "'Well, Brown, do you know anything?' Brown did not know much, and so Mr. Lincoln, secretly nervous and impatient, rose and exclaimed, "'Let's go to the telegraph office.' After waiting some time at the office, the result of the first ballot came over the wire. It was apparent to all present that Mr. Lincoln thought it very favorable. He believed that if Mr. Seward failed to get the nomination, or to come very near it, on the first ballot, he would fail altogether.' Presently the news of the second ballot arrived, and Mr. Lincoln showed by his manner that he considered the contest no longer doubtful. "'I've got him,' said he. He then went over to the office of the journal, where other friends were awaiting decisive intelligence. The local editor of that paper, Mr. Zane and others, remained behind to receive the expected dispatch. In due time it came. The operator was intensely excited— 
At first he threw down his pencil, but seizing it again, wrote off the news that threw Springfield into a frenzy of delight. The local editor picked it up and rushed to the journal office. Upon entering the room, he called for three cheers for the next president. They were given, and then the dispatch was read. Mr. Lincoln seemed to be calm, but a close observer could detect in his countenance the indications of deep emotion. In the meantime, cheers for Lincoln swelled up from the streets, and began to be heard throughout the town. Someone remarked, "'Mr. Lincoln, I suppose now we will soon have a book containing your life.' "'There is not much,' he replied, in my past life, about which to write a book, as it seems to me. Having received the hearty congratulations of the company in the office, he descended to the street, where he was immediately surrounded by Irish and American citizens, and so long as he was willing to receive it there was great handshaking and felicitating. "'Gentlemen,' said the great man, with a happy twinkle in his eye, "'you had better come up and shake my hand while you can. Honours elevate some men, you know.' But he soon bethought him of a person who was of more importance to him than all this crowd. Looking towards his house, he said, "'Well, gentlemen, there is a short little woman at our house who is probably more interested in this dispatch than I am, and if you will excuse me, I will take it up and let her see it. During the day a hundred guns were fired at Springfield, and in the evening a great mass meeting ratified the nomination, and after doing so adjourned to the house of the nominee. Mr. Lincoln appeared, made a model speech, and invited into his house everybody that could get in. To this the immense crowd responded that they would give him a larger house the next year, and in the meantime beset the one he had until after midnight. On the following day the committee of the convention, with Mr. Ashman, the president, at its head, arrived at Springfield to notify Mr. Lincoln of his nomination. Contrary to what might have been expected, he seemed sad and dejected. The reaction from the excessive joy to deep despondency, a process peculiar to his constitution, had already set in. To the formal address of the committee he responded with admirable taste and feeling. Mr. Chairman and gentlemen of the committee, I tender to you, and through you to the Republican National Convention, and all the people represented in it, my profoundest thanks for the high honor done me, which you now formally announce. Deeply and even painfully sensible of the great responsibility which is inseparable from this high honor, a responsibility which I could almost wish had fallen upon some one of the far more eminent men and experienced statesmen whose distinguished names were before the convention, I shall by your leave consider more fully the resolutions of the convention, denominated the platform, and without unnecessary and unreasonable delay, respond to you, Mr. Chairman, in writing, not doubting that the platform will be found satisfactory, and the nomination gratefully accepted. And now I will not longer defer the pleasure of taking you and each of you by the hand. The committee handed him a letter containing the official notice, accompanied by the resolutions of the convention, and to this he replied on the 23rd as follows. Springfield, Illinois, May 23, 1860. Honorable George Ashman, President of the Republican National Convention. Sir, I accept the nomination tendered me by the convention over which you presided, 
and of which I am formally apprised in the letter of yourself and others, acting as a committee of the Convention for that purpose. The declaration of principles and sentiments which accompanies your letter meets my approval, and it shall be my care not to violate or disregard it in any part. Imploring the assistance of divine providence, and with due regard to the views and feelings of all who were represented in the Convention, to the rights of all the states and territories and people of the nation, to the inviolability of the Constitution, and the perpetual union, harmony, and prosperity of all, I am most happy to cooperate for the practical success of the principles declared by the Convention. Your obliged friend and fellow-citizen, Abraham Lincoln. In the meantime, the National Democratic Convention had met, in Charleston, South Carolina, and had split in twain. The South utterly repudiated Mr. Douglas's new heresy, and Mr. Douglas insisted that the whole party ought to become heretics with him, and turning their backs upon the Dred Scott decision and the Cincinnati platform, give up slavery in the territories to the tender mercies of squatter sovereignty and unfriendly legislation. Neither party to this controversy would be satisfied with a simple reaffirmation of the Cincinnati platform, for under it Mr. Douglas could go to the North and say that it meant squatter sovereignty, and Mr. Breckinridge could go to the South and say that it meant congressional protection to slavery. In fact, it meant neither and said neither, but declared in plain English words that Congress had no power to interfere with slavery in the territories, and that when the territories were about to become states, they had all power to settle the question for themselves. General B. F. Butler of Massachusetts proposed to heal the ominous divisions in the Convention by the re-adoption of that clear and emphatic provision, but his voice was soon drowned in the clamors of the fiercer disputants. The differences were irreconcilable. Mr. Douglas's friends had come there determined to nominate him at any cost, and in order to nominate him they dared not concede the platform to the South. A majority of the Committee on Resolutions reported the Cincinnati platform with the Southern interpretation of it, and the minority reported the same platform with a recitation concerning the differences of opinion in the Democratic Party, and a pledge to abide by the decision of the Supreme Court on the questions of constitutional law, a pledge supposed to be of little value, since those who gave it were that very moment in the very act of repudiating the only decision the Court had ever rendered. The minority report was adopted, after a protracted and acrimonious debate, by a vote of 165 to 138. Thereupon the Southern delegates, most of them under instructions from their state conventions, withdrew and organized themselves into a separate convention. The remaining delegates, called the Rump by their Democratic adversaries, proceeded to ballot for a candidate for president, and voted fifty-seven times without effecting a nomination. Mr. Douglas, of course, received the highest number of votes, but the old two-thirds rule being in force, he failed of a nomination. Mr. Guthrie of Kentucky was his principal competitor, but at one time and another Mr. Hunter of Virginia, General Lane of Oregon, and Mr. Johnson of Tennessee received flattering and creditable votes. 
after the fifty-seventh ballot the convention adjourned to meet at baltimore on the eighteenth of june the seceders met in another hall adopted the majority platform as the adhering delegates had adopted the minority platform and then adjourned to meet at richmond on the second monday in june faint hopes of accommodation were still entertained and when the seceders met at richmond they adjourned again to baltimore and the twenty eighth of june the douglas convention assuming to be the regular one had invited the southern states to fill up the vacant seats which belonged to them but when the new delegates appeared they were met with the apprehension that their votes might not be perfectly secure for mr douglas and were therefore in many instances lawlessly excluded this was the signal for another secession the border states withdrew mr butler and the massachusetts delegation withdrew mr cushing deserted the chair and took that of the rival convention the regular convention it was said was now the rump of a rump on the first ballot for a candidate mr douglas had one hundred seventy three and a half votes mr guthrie ten mr breckinridge five and three were scattered on the second ballot mr douglas had one hundred eighty one and a half mr breckinridge five and mr guthrie five and a half it was plain that under the two-thirds rule no nomination could be made here neither mr douglas nor any one else could receive two-thirds of a full convention it was therefore resolved that mr douglas having received two-thirds of all the votes given in this convention should be declared the nominee mr fitzpatrick of alabama was nominated for vice-president but declined to stand and mr johnson of georgia was substituted for him by the douglas national committee in the seceders convention twenty-one states were represented more or less fully it had no trouble in selecting a candidate john c breckinridge of kentucky and joseph lane of oregon were unanimously nominated for the offices of president and vice-president in the meantime another party the constitutional union party had met in baltimore on the nineteenth of may and nominated john bell of tennessee for president and edward everett of massachusetts for vice-president its platform was in brief the constitution of the country the union of the states and the enforcement of the laws this body was composed for the most part of impenitent know-nothings and respectable old-line whigs the spring elections had given the democracy good reason to hope for success in the fall the commercial classes the shipping classes and large numbers of the manufacturers were thoroughly alarmed for the safety of the great trade dependent upon a political connection with the south it seemed probable that a great reaction against anti-slavery agitations might take place but the division at charleston the permanent organization of the two factions at baltimore and their mutual and rancorous hostility completely reversed this delusive prospect a majority of the whole people of the union looked forward to a republican victory with dread and a large part with actual terror and yet it was now clear that that majority was fatally bent upon wasting its power in the bitter struggles of the factions which composed it mr lincoln's election was assured 
and for them there was nothing left but to put the house in order for the great convulsion which all our political fathers and prophets had predicted as the necessary consequence of such an event on the sixth of november abraham lincoln was elected president of the united states he received one million eight hundred fifty seven thousand six hundred ten votes mr douglas had one million two hundred ninety one thousand five hundred seventy four mr breckinridge eight hundred fifty thousand eighty two mr bell six hundred forty six thousand one hundred twenty four against mr lincoln there was a majority of nine hundred eighty thousand one hundred seventy of all the votes cast of the electoral votes mr lincoln had one hundred eighty mr breckinridge seventy two mr bell thirty and mr douglas twelve it is more than likely that mr lincoln owed this his crowning triumph to the skill and adroitness with which he questioned mr douglas in the canvass of eighteen fifty eight and drew out of him those fatal opinions about squatter sovereignty and unfriendly legislation in the territories but for mr douglas's committal to those opinions it is not likely that mr lincoln would ever have been president the election over mr lincoln was sorely beset by office-seekers individuals deputations delegations from all quarters pressed in upon him in a manner that might have killed a man of less robust constitution the hotels of springfield were filled with gentlemen who came with light baggage and heavy schemes the party had never been in office a clean sweep of the inns was expected and all the outs were patriotically anxious to take their vacant places it was a party that had never fed and it was voraciously hungry mr lincoln and artemus ward saw a great deal of fun in it and in all human probability it was the fun alone that enabled mr lincoln to bear it judge davis says that mr lincoln had determined to appoint democrats and republicans alike to office many things confirm this statement mr lincoln felt deeply the responsibility of his great trust and he felt still more keenly the supposed impossibility of administering the government for the sole benefit of an organization which had no existence in one half of the union he was therefore willing not only to appoint democrats to office but to appoint them to the very highest offices within his gift at this time he thought very highly of mr stevens of georgia and would gladly have taken him into his cabinet but for the fear that georgia might secede and take mr stevens along with her he did actually authorize his friend mr speed to offer the treasury department to mr guthrie of kentucky and mr guthrie for good reasons of his own declined it the full significance of this act of courageous magnanimity cannot be understood without reference to the proceedings of the charleston convention where mr guthrie was one of the foremost candidates he considered the names of various other gentlemen from the border states each of them with good pro-slavery antecedents he commissioned thurlow weed to replace a seat in the cabinet at the disposal of mr gilmore of north carolina but mr gilmore finding that his state was likely to secede was reluctantly compelled to decline it he was in fact sincerely and profoundly anxious that the south should be honestly represented in his councils by men who had an abiding place in the hearts of her people 
To accomplish that high purpose he was forced to go beyond the ranks of his own party, and he had the manliness to do it. He felt that his strength lay in conciliation at the outset. That was his ruling conviction during all those months of preparation for the great task before him. It showed itself not only in the appointments which he sought to make, but in those which he did make. Harboring no jealousies, entertaining no fears concerning his personal interests in the future, he called around him the most powerful of his late rivals, Seward, Chase, Bates, and unhesitatingly gave into their hands powers which most presidents would have shrunk from committing to their equals, and much more to their superiors in the conduct of public affairs. The cases of Cameron and Smith, however, were very distressing. He had authorized no one to make such bargains for him as had been made with the friends of these men. He would gladly have repudiated the contracts, if it could have been done with honor and safety. For Smith he had great regard, and believed that he had rendered important services in the late elections, but his character was now grossly assailed, and it would have saved Mr. Lincoln serious embarrassments if he had been able to put him aside altogether, and select Mr. Lane or some other Indiana statesman in his place. He wavered long, but finally made up his mind to keep the pledge of his friends, and Smith was appointed. In Cameron's case the contest was fierce and more protracted. At Chicago Cameron's agents had demanded that he should have the Treasury Department, but that was too much, and the friends of Mr. Lincoln, tried, pushed, and anxious as they were, declined to consider it. They would say that he should be appointed to a cabinet position, but no more, and to secure this he must get a majority of the Pennsylvania delegation to recommend him. Mr. Cameron was disposed to exact the penalty of his bond, hard as compliance might be on the part of Mr. Lincoln. But Cameron had many and formidable enemies, who alleged that he was a man notorious for his evil deeds, shameless in his rapacity and corruption, and even more shameless in his mean ambition to occupy exalted stations for which he was utterly and hopelessly incompetent, that he had never dared to offer himself as a candidate before the people of Pennsylvania, but had more than once gotten high offices from their legislature by the worst means ever used by a politician, and that it would be a disgrace, a shame, a standing offense to the country, if Mr. Lincoln should content to put him into his cabinet. On the other hand, Mr. Cameron had no lack of devoted friends to deny these charges, and to say that his was as white a soul as ever yearned for political preferment. They came out to Springfield in numbers. Edgar Cowan, J. K. Moorhead, Alexander Cummins, Mr. Sanderson, Mr. Casey, and many others, besides General Cameron himself. On the ground, of course, were the powerful gentlemen who had made the original contract on the part of Mr. Lincoln, and who, from first to last, strenuously insisted on its fulfillment. It required a hard struggle to overcome Mr. Lincoln's scruples, and the whole force was necessarily mustered in order to accomplish it. "'All that I am in the world,' said he, the presidency and all else, I owe to that opinion of me which the people express when they call me Honest Old Abe. Now what will they think of their Honest Abe when he appoints Simon Cameron to be his familiar adviser? 
In Pennsylvania it was supposed for a while that Cameron's audacity had failed him, and that he would abandon the attempt. But about the first of January Mr. Sweat, one of the contracting parties, appeared at Harrisburg, and immediately afterwards Cameron and some of his friends took flight to Springfield. This circumstance put the vigilant opposition on the alert, and aroused them to a clear sense of the impending calamity. The sequel is a painful story, and it is perhaps better to give it in the words of a distinguished actor, Colonel Alexander K. McClure. I do not know, says he, that any went there to oppose the appointment but myself. When I learned that Cameron had started to Springfield, and that his visit related to the cabinet, I at once telegraphed Lincoln that such an appointment would be most unfortunate. Until that time no one outside a small circle of Cameron's friends dreamed of Lincoln's calling him to the cabinet. Lincoln's character for honesty was considered a complete guarantee against such a suicidal act. No efforts had therefore been made to guard against it. In reply to my telegram, Mr. Lincoln answered, requesting me to come to Springfield at once. I hastily got letters from Governor Curtin, Secretary Slifer, Mr. Wilmot, Mr. Dayton, Mr. Stevens, and started. I took no affidavits with me, nor were any specific charges made against him by me, or by any of the letters I bore, but they all sustained me in the allegation that the appointment would disgrace the administration and the country, because of the notorious incompetency and public and private villainy of the candidate. I spent four hours with Mr. Lincoln alone, and the matter was discussed very fully and frankly. Although he had previously decided to appoint Cameron, he closed our interview by a reconsideration of his purpose, and the assurance that within twenty-four hours he would write me definitely on the subject. He wrote me, as he promised, and stated that if I would make specific charges against Mr. Cameron and produce the proof, he would dismiss the subject. I answered, declining to do so, for reasons I thought should be obvious to every one. I believe that affidavits were sent to him, but I had no hand in it. Subsequently Cameron regarded his appointment as impossible, and he proposed to Stevens to join in pressing him. Stevens wrote me of the fact, and I procured strong letters from the state administration in his favor. A few days after, Stevens wrote me a most bitter letter, saying that Cameron had deceived him, and was then attempting to enforce his own appointment. The bond was demanded of Lincoln, and that decided the matter. As this was one of the few public acts which Mr. Lincoln performed with a bad conscience, the reader ought to know the consequences of it, and because it may not be convenient to refer to them in detail at another place, we will give them here still retaining the language of the eye-witness Colonel McClure. I saw Cameron the night of the day that Lincoln removed him. We met in the room of a mutual friend, and he was very violent against Lincoln for removing him without consultation or notice. His denunciation against the President was extremely bitter, for attempting, as he said, his personal as well as his political destruction. He exhibited the letter, which was all in Mr. Lincoln's handwriting, and was literally as follows, I quote from carefully treasured recollection, Honorable Simon Cameron, Secretary of War, Dear Sir, I have this day nominated Honorable Edwin M. Stanton to be Secretary of War, and you to be Minister Plenipotentiary to Russia. 
Very truly, A. Lincoln. I am sure there is no material error in my quotation of the letter. Cameron's chief complaint was that he had no knowledge or intimation of the change until Chase delivered the letter. We were then, as ever before and since, and as we ever shall be, not in political sympathy, but our personal relations were ever kind. Had he been entirely collected, he would probably not have said and done what I heard and witnessed, but he wept like a child, and appealed to me to aid in protecting him against the President's attempt at personal degradation, assuring me that under like circumstances he would defend me. In my presence the proposition was made and determined upon to ask Lincoln to allow a letter of resignation to be antedated and to write a kind acceptance of the same in reply. The effort was made, in which Mr. Chase joined, although perhaps ignorant of all the circumstances of the case, and it succeeded. The record shows that Mr. Cameron voluntarily resigned, while in point of fact he was summarily removed without notice. In many subsequent conversations with Mr. Lincoln, he did not attempt to conceal the great misfortune of Cameron's appointment and the painful necessity of his removal. As a slight relief to the miseries of his high position, and the doleful tales of the office hunters who assailed him morning, noon, and night, Mr. Lincoln ran off to Chicago, where he was met with the same annoyances, and a splendid reception besides. Here, however, he enjoyed the great satisfaction of a long private conference with his old friend Speed, and it was then that he authorized him to invite Mr. Guthrie to the cabinet. And now he began to think very tenderly of his friends and relatives in Coles County, especially of his good stepmother and her daughters. By the first of February he concluded that he could not leave his home to assume the vast responsibilities that awaited him without paying them a visit. Accordingly, he left Springfield on the first day of that month, and went straight to Charleston, where Colonel Chapman and family resided. He was accompanied by Mr. Marshall, the state senator from that district, and was entertained at his house. The people crowded by hundreds to see him, and he was serenaded by both the string and brass bands of the town, but declined making a speech. Early the next morning he repaired to his cousin, Dennis Hanks, and our jolly old friend Dennis had the satisfaction of seeing a grand levee under his own roof. It was all very pleasant to Mr. Lincoln to see such multitudes of familiar faces smiling upon his wonderful successes. But the chief object of his solicitude was not here. Mrs. Lincoln lived in the southern part of the county, and he was all impatience to see her. As soon, therefore, as he had taken a frugal breakfast with Dennis, he and Colonel Chapman started off in a two-horse buggy toward Farmington, where his stepmother was living with her daughter, Mrs. Moore. They had much difficulty in crossing the Kickapoo River, which was running full of ice, but they finally made the dangerous passage and arrived at Farmington in safety. The meeting between him and the old lady was of a most affectionate and tender character. She fondled him as her own Abe, and he her as his own mother. It was soon arranged that she should return with him to Charleston, so that they might enjoy by the way the unrestricted and uninterrupted intercourse which they both desired above all things, but which they were not likely to have where the people could get at him. Then Mr. Lincoln and Colonel Chapman drove to the house of John Hall, 
who lived on the old Lincoln farm, where Abe split the celebrated rails, and fenced in the little clearing in 1830. Thence they went to the spot where old Tom Lincoln was buried. The grave was unmarked and utterly neglected. Mr. Lincoln said he wanted to have it enclosed and a suitable tombstone erected. He told Colonel Chapman to go to a marble dealer, ascertain the cost of the work proposed, and write him in full. He would then send Dennis Hanks the money, and an inscription for the stone, and Dennis would do the rest. Colonel Chapman performed his part of the business, but Mr. Lincoln noticed it no further, and the grave remains in the same condition to this day. We then returned, says Colonel Chapman, to Farmington, where we found a large crowd of citizens, nearly all old acquaintances, waiting to see him. His reception was very enthusiastic, and appeared to gratify him very much. After taking dinner at his stepsister's, Mrs. Moore, we returned to Charleston, his stepmother coming with us. Our conversation during this trip was mostly concerning family affairs. Mr. Lincoln spoke to me on the way down to Farmington of his stepmother in the most affectionate manner, said she had been his best friend in the world, and that no son could love a mother more than he loved her. He also told me of the condition of his father's family at the time he married his stepmother, and of the change that she made in the family, and of the encouragement he, Abe, had received from her. He spoke of his father, and related some amusing incidents of the old man, of the bulldogs biting the old man on his return from New Orleans, of the old man's escape when a boy from an Indian who was shot by his uncle Mordecai. He spoke of his uncle Mordecai as being a man of very great natural gifts, and spoke of his stepbrother, John D. Johnston, who had died a short time previous, in the most affectionate manner. Arriving at Charleston, on our return from Farmington, we proceeded to my residence. Again the house was crowded by persons wishing to see him. The crowd finally became so great that he authorized me to announce that he would hold a public reception at the town hall that evening at seven o'clock, but that, until then, he wished to be left with relations and friends. After supper we proceeded to the town hall, where large numbers from the town and surrounding country, irrespective of party, called to see him. He left this place Wednesday morning at four o'clock to return to Springfield. Mr. Lincoln appeared to enjoy his visit here remarkably well. His reception by his old acquaintances appeared to be very gratifying to him. They all appeared so glad to see him, irrespective of party, and all appeared so anxious that his administration might be a success, and that he might have a pleasant and honorable career as president. The parting between Mr. Lincoln and his mother was very touching. She embraced him with deep emotion, and said she was sure she would never behold him again, for she felt that his enemies would assassinate him. He replied, no, no, Mama, they will not do that. Trust in the Lord, and all will be well. We will see each other again. Inexpressibly affected by this new evidence of her tender attachment and deep concern for his safety, he gradually and reluctantly withdrew himself from the arms of the only mother he had ever known, feeling still more oppressed by the heavy cares which time and events were rapidly augmenting. The fear that Mr. Lincoln would be assassinated was not peculiar to his stepmother. 
It was shared by very many of his neighbors at Springfield, and the friendly warnings he received were as numerous as they were silly and gratuitous. Every conceivable precaution was suggested. Some thought the cars might be thrown from the track. Some thought he would be surrounded and stabbed in some great crowd. Others thought he might be shot from a housetop as he rode up Pennsylvania Avenue on Inauguration Day while others still were sure he would be quietly poisoned long before the fourth of march one gentleman insisted that he ought in common prudence to take his cook with him from springfield one from among his own female friends mingled with the thousands who came to see him were many of his old new salem and petersburg friends and constituents and among these was hannah armstrong the wife of jack and the mother of william Hannah had been to see him once or twice before, and had thought there was something mysterious in his conduct. He never invited her to his house or introduced her to his wife, and this circumstance led Hannah to suspect that there was something wrong between him and her. On one occasion she attempted a sort of surreptitious entrance to his house by the kitchen door, but it ended very ludicrously, and poor Hannah was very much discouraged. On this occasion she made no effort to get upon an intimate footing with his family, but went straight to the State House, where he received the common run of strangers. He talked to her as he would have done in the days when he ran for the legislature, and Jack was an influential citizen. Hannah was perfectly charmed, and nearly beside herself with pride and pleasure. She, too, was filled with the dread of some fatal termination to all his glory. "'Well,' says she, I talked to him some time, and was about to bid him good-bye, had told him that it was the last time I should ever see him, something told me that I should never see him, they would kill him. He smiled and said jokingly, Hannah, if they do kill me, I shall never die another death. I then bade him good-bye. End of section 29